Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Random History Podcast. Today, I'll be continuing my series on the lives of great people. The thing to know is that as I continue the series, I will probably only release one episode at a time, as the usually these great people covers, because they are the entire lives of very important individuals, often go pretty far in length, and are usually the equivalent of, if not greater than, my normal two podcasts at a time release. So I'm going to go start off with today... Uh, covering Constantine the Great, also known as Constantine I, a very notable Roman emperor and the, found, and the founder slash namesake of Constantinople. So I'm going to first talk about his birth. So the thing to know is that he was actually not born in the Byzantine Empire. He was born in the city of Nysus, which is now known as Nis in Serbia, but back then it was part of the Dardanian province of Moesia. And he was born in, I believe, I want to say closer to Moesa Superior, which is central Serbia, Kosovo, and the northern part of North Macedonia. And then, the, and it was kind of near the Balkan, like north of Greece, that kind of area. And his father was Flavius Constantius in Illyrian, and he was a native of that same province. And his mother was Helena. And the thing to know is that he probably spent very little time with his father, as his father was an officer in the Roman army and was part of the imperial bodyguard. And his father was believed to have been quite uh, how does, quite tall, quite skilled. They noticed that Constantius was a tolerant and politically skilled man. That's what he was described at. And his father eventually earned the governorship of Dalmatia from Emperor Diocletian. And two eighty four to eighty five, and Constantine's mother, so as mentioned, was Helena. She was a Greek woman of low social standing, and she was from Helenopolis, of Bithynia. I wrote that it down, so I wouldn't say that wrong. And it is uncertain over whether she was actually legally married to Constantinus or just his concubine. And Constantine's main language was Latin, so a lot of his speeches required Greek translators. And then Tino's Adam talk a little bit about what's happening in Rome at the time. So in July of 285, Diocletian would declare Maximian, another colleague from Alicrium, his co-emperor. And at this point, each emperor had their own court. They had their own military and administrative duties, and each would rule with a sef- separate lieutenant. And we see Maximilian ruling from the west, while in Diocletian in the east. And this was more of a pragmatic idea to make it easier to administer the emperor as the emperor still couldn't in what's called the indivisible empire, and at this point, emperors could kind of move around wherever. And soon enough, Maximian Max would end up appointing Constantine, Constantius to serve as his praetorian prefect in the area of Gaul. And at this point, Constantius would leave Helena to marry Maximian, stepped out of Theodora. And Diocletian would again divide the emperor the Empire in 293 AD. This is really when we see the Roman Empire divide itself up a lot. He ended up appointing two Caesars, aka junior emperors, to rule over even further subdivisions. It looks like basically each would be subordinate to their senior emperors, so him and Maximian, but they would act as supreme authority in their own lands, and this would be known as the Tetrarchy. And Constantius was actually the first appointee for the office of Caesar, and the second would be Galerius. And soon enough, they would continue to have some issues. They'd continue to go with the the Tetrarchy. Thanks to know is that because of Constantius' rise, essentially, and even though the 
tetrarchy appeared to be a meritocracy or had some meritocratic attributes about it, it was still very hereditary, as a lot of institutions were. And as a result, Constantine became a pretty prime candidate for a future appointment as Caesar. As soon as his father would take took the position, and he ended up moving to the court of Diocletian, where he lived as his father's heir presumptive, which essentially means just he's the dude who's entitled to inherit the throne. Then to notice that when in Diocletian's court, Constantine would receive a formal education in such concepts such as Latin, literature, Greek, and philosophy. To notice that in where the court was in Nicomedia, it was a pretty fluid and socially mobile place. Just let Constantine mix with a lot of different people. However, I think to notice that Diocletian didn't fully trust Constantius because, well, the, the, the whole Tetrarch system was kind of a lot of mistrust. As a result, Constantine was technically somewhat of a hostage, though he was also still a prominent member and a member who served heavily. He fought for Diocletian in Asia, he fought in the Danube, he fought in Syria and in Mesopotamia. And was that... By the time that Constantine would return from to Nicomedia from the, another battle, he would witness the beginning of the Dioc- of Diocletian's great persecution, which was probably the great. Actually, no, it is the most severe. Not probably the most severe. It is the most severe persecution of Christians in Roman history. And by late three or two, Diocletian and Galerius ended up sending this messenger to go to the oracle to basically make an inquiry. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the persecution and basically what happened is that Diocletian ordered the destruction of the Nicomedian church and then to continue to destroy more churches and scripture and imprisoning, imprisoned priests and also stripped Christians of their ranks. And things was that it's unlikely that Constantine was actually involved in this, but he also did not oppose this. And though, though no one ever really challenged him for his inaction during this persecution, it would still kind of be a political liability throughout much of his life, and think to know is that Diocletian would resign by three hundred five A would announce his resignation by three hundred five A.D. Partly because he would been sickly, and it which has been pretty debilitating, debilitating. Sorry, and it's kind of weakened him. He's like, okay, I'm going to resign, and in a peril, peril. Parallel ceremony at the same time or around the same time in the area of Milan, Maximian did the same. However, some people will say that Diocletian didn't actually choose or sign on his own. He was manipulated by Galerius. Thing is that that people believe that Constantine and Maxentius, which is Maximian's son, would be would be promoted to the successors of Diocletian, but but rather. They would not be. Constantius and Galerius would become Augusti. And Severius and Maxinius die would become their Caesars. Basically, the Galerius family were able to manipulate their way to repl- to kind of drive out Maximian and Constantine. And notice that some of the ancient sources show that there may have been plots on Constantine's life following the abdication of Diocletian. And there's, some of these attempts include him leading a cavalry charge through a swamp in single con- single combat with a lion, and even possibly attempting to kill him in hunts and wars. But these trips are not entirely trusted, and at this point, Constantine's like, okay, this is probably dangerous. The bee here, so he ended up 
in his career at this point depended on being rescued by his father in the West. And at this point, Constantius, though he was kind of an absentee father, was pretty quick to intervene. And by 305, he ended up requesting his son to help him campaign in Britain. And he would have, and then Galerius would grant this request, and Constantine's later propaganda would describe basically like, I fled, cover of night, going as far as I can. And at this point, he would go his way into York, which was at this point, which was known as Aboracum, Aboracum, something like that, and was the, and was the capital of a southern province in Britain. Constantine would have been about a year at this point, and he would campaign against the Picts, and, but he would be not super successful. And at this point, Constantius would be, was pretty severely sick and would die in 306. And before dying, he declared his support for raising Constantine up to the rank of Augustus. And at this point, the troops lawyer to Constantius and several other people had acclaimed him as Augustus. And, and as a result of this, but many provinces, so Gaul and Britain, would accept as a goal. However, Hispania, which was only a recent province acquisition under his father, would not really accept this. And at this point, Constantine would send Galerius an official notice in his own declaration that he is the king. And he would basically say, make me the, uh, like, I want to be recognized as the heir. And at this point, Galerius was somewhat, uh, believed to be somewhat angry, but at this point, he was able to, he was, he, he compromised, rather than denying his claim, as he thought that denying the claim would be outright war, so he gave, made Constantine Caesar rather than Augustus. Then we'll talk a bit about his early role, then we'll talk about his, some other stuff. I'm talking about early role, not about his early life. So at this point, his share of the empire was Britain, Gaul, which is kind of France at this, basically, in Spain, and he commanded one of the largest Roman empires, as he was in part in charge of guarding the important Rhine frontier, which is where a lot of the barbarians lived beyond. And he would remain in Britain after his promotion to emperor, and he would drive back the Picts, and he would also secure his control in the northern western parts. He would also end up finishing the reconstruction of bases that his father had begun, and repaired many roadways. And then he would move to Gaul, which was the Tetrarchic capital of the Northwestern Empire of Rome. And at this point, the Franks would invade between 306 and 307, and he would capture many soldiers and two Frank kings. And soon enough, the thing to know is that Trier, which he was his capital, it was known as Augusta Treverium back then, Augusta Treverorum back then, but I'm going to call it Trier, as that's its modern-day name. And he would end up making a major expansion. He would improve the circuit wall by adding a bunch of towers and gates and even build a palace complex. And to the south, he would actually build the a formal audience hall and a massive bathhouse. And he would also sponsor many different projects in Gaul throughout his time in the empire. And at this point, though he, had not, he was not yet a Christian, he would be pretty tolerable to Christians. And he ended up decreeing the formal end to the prosecution. Thank you, though, however, while he did do some good things, definitely, he was largely untried, and he had a, lo- a hint of a- illegitimacy about him, just because, you know, he wasn't appointed like his father. He won it by birthright. Thank you, that he would actually rely on his father's reputation a lot in his early, like, I would call it propaganda. He'll have all these messages about himself, kind of, to make people like him. And he would basically cover a lot of his father's deeds. However, his military skill and his building stuff would soon give a lot of people opportunities to praise him. Then he would also be somewhat disdainful towards the barbarians, and a lot of the stuff that he would do would show this. And he would be very unsympathetic to them. I'm talking a little bit about 
a rebellion that he faced. So soon enough after Constantine was recognized as Caesar by Galerius, Constantine portrait would be brought to Roman at this point. Maxentius would mock his portrait. And Maxentius, who was envious of Constantine's authority, would seize the title of emperor in 306. And Galerius refused to recognize him, but would also fail to unseat him. And at this point, Galerius would send Severus against Maxentius. But during this campaign, thing to know is that Maxentius' father had previously been the commander of Severus's armies, and these would defect, leaving Severus to be imprisoned. And by this point, Maximian, who had basically been brought out of retirement by his son's rebellion, would leave for Gaul to confer with Constantine, and he would offer to marry his daughter, Foster to Constantine, and elevate him to the rank of Augustine. And in return for that, Constantine would basically say, like, okay, I'm going to reform the alliance, and I'm going to help Maxentius. Then to notice how, ever, rather than him participating, he would leave pretty aloof from this conflict. He would actually leave Gaul for Britain to avoid any involvement, and rather than helping Maxentius militarily, he would actually just fight the Rhines. In the Rhine, he would actually raid the territory and cross across the bridge to the northern Rhine area and just fight the Franks. They know that while his participation in the war, people may assume that would hurt him, it actually helped him a lot. His, it made him much more popular and made it, gave him much better power base in the west of Rome or west of what is the Roman Empire. And Maximian would soon return to Rome, and he would actually follow the favorite son in an attempt to usurp him, but would eventually return to Constantine's court. And on 11th of November, 308 AD, Galerius would end up calling a military council to resolve all this instability in the west and attendance via Diocletian would come out of retirement for a bit, Maximian and Constantine, and then Galerius. And at this point, Maximian was forced to be abdicated again, and Constantine would be demoted to Caesar once more. And at this point, Licinius, who was one of Galerius's old military companions, would be promoted to Augustus in the west. However, this new system wouldn't last long, and Constantine didn't really accept his demotion and continued to call himself Augustus in many different coins and all types of stuff. And Maximus Day would also be very frustrated. And soon enough, Maximian would revolt, and by this, in 310, Maximian would rebel against Constantine. And uh, and after this, Constantine would end up marching back to deal with this, and Maximian would actually flee for quite a bit of time, and he would be reproved. The thing to know is that why Constantine had encouraged his clemency, he strongly encouraged the man to commit suicide, and we'd later see Maximian hang himself. And the thing to know is that despite the fact that uh, Maxentius and Maximian were not were not exactly friendly with one another. Maximian would end up actually minting coins with his father's deified image, and he would basically try to play up on that bond between them as a way to kind of say, like, I will get revenge type deal, kind of to boost his reputation. And Constantine initially tried to show this suicide as this very, like, tragic event, but later on he would try to propagandize it as, oh, Maximian planned to murder me. And that Maximian, I put us, I put a different dude than me in my bed, and Maximian murdered him. And that Maximian was caught committing a murderer. And along with this propaganda, he would actually insist on the Damnatio Memore, which is basically when you destroy all the inscriptions that refer to him and destroy any public works with his image. And with the death of Maximian, we Constantine had to shift his public image. He could no really longer rely on his connection to the old emperor, and he needed a new source of legitimacy. And in the and soon enough later on, 
people would there would be this propaganda of him having a tie to another a dynastic another dynastic emperor known as Claudius II. And basically, the idea is that people would say that rather than like having this imperial equality, he has ancestral prerogative to rule. And he continued to propagandize. Um, and soon enough, and even though like this dynastic, actually, no, real quick, in addition to talking about dynastic stuff, he would go on to talking about how Constantine got all these visions from the gods, and this would actually work, and this would strengthen his popularity among the citizens of Gaul. It would also make it, him seem more legitimate, and I'm talking a little bit about the civil wars of the Tetrarchy. So, by the middle of 310 AD, Galerius would be come too ill to really become involved in imperial politics, and his last act would actually be a end to the Christian persecutions. And at this point, civil war broke out with Galerius's death. death. Maximinius would end up mobilizing against Licinius and Caesonese in Major, and at this point, while Constantine was in Britain and Gaul just touring, Maxentius prepared for war. And went up strengthening the support of the Christian community. But Maxentius' rule would be pretty insecure, and he ended up losing a lot of his early support due to his heightened tax rates and the fact that trade was depressed at that time. There would be a lot of riots, and he would actually briefly lose his authority in Africa when he got absurd by another man. And by 312 AD, he would not be really supported. He would be barely tolerated and not really supported. And by 311 AD, he would mobilize against Constantine. And thing to note is that at this point, he had, he tried to make a like a tie, or he was planning on making an alliance with Licinius. How would Constantine beat him to the punch and make his own alliance with Licinius? And at this point, there was a lot of military buildup, and people began to prepare for war. And thing to note is that Constantine basically would have been advised against preemptive attacks, but he would actually ignore all of these cautions against it. And soon enough. By the spring of 312 AD, he had crossed the Cotian Alps with a quarter of his force, about 40,000 men. And his, for and his first town he ended up taking was Secusium, which is now Secusa in Italy. And he ended up basically saying, don't loot the town, just continue to move into northern Italy. And eventually he would actually meet a large force, but he would be able to defeat them and defeat, his and defeat the forces under Maxentius, forcing them into retreat. And after this, the city that he was actually moving towards ended up refusing to help Maxentius' forces, and a lot of the cities would basically congratulate him, and at this point, northern Italy kind of been swayed over to his side almost, and he would end up moving to Milan, where he would actually be met with a lot open gates and a lot of his rejoicing and happiness. He would actually rest his army in Milan until midsummer, when he would move to Brixia, which is also known as Brixia. He knows that the army in Brixia was pretty easily dispersed, and Constantine would quickly advance to Verona, where a large force under Maxentius was camped. And he would continue to move with this, and soon enough, Rusius Pompeianus, who was actually a, a man there who was defending the town, and he would end up putting this town under siege, and he would actually end up killing Rusius and would seize several different towns, uh, and constantly would seize several different towns, and at this point, it was, it was able for him to march on Rome, and he had basically opened the way for him to march. And at this point, Maxentius was preparing for war, and he ended up getting ready for a siege. And he eventually basically ended up abandoning all of Italy except for Rome. And at this point, Constantine would end up securing this area's support without challenge. And he would go pretty slowly, to be honest, along the Via Flaximinia, which was this Roman road that led towards Rome. And he would allow Max 
Maxentius's weakness really to weaken his regime even further. And at this point, Maxentius, who felt that he no longer felt that he might win a siege, ended up making a boat bridge across the Tiber to get ready for a field battle. And at this point, his forces were twice the size of, of the Romans, of Constantine's Roman force, sorry. But he would organize some of these long lines with the, basically the backs of the river. And then that there's this thing where basically what happened is that Constantine's army arrived with these strange slash unfamiliar symbols on the shields. And according to the account of a man named Lactantius, Constantine had this dream to cause this heaven. He was directing the dream, dream to have the, the symbol ended up riding on the sides of his shoulders. And he had it marked on the shields. And it was basically an axe with a perpendicular line drawn through it and turned around to the top. I'm quoting that. And this was essentially the cipher of Christ. And with this, his forces would go into war. And at this point, this was actually a pretty brief battle despite the numerical advantage of Maxentius. And you would actually push, end up taking many of Maxentius's forces out. What we would do is end up basically sending his infantry against Maxentius' infantry and force them essentially into the Tiber. And at this point, he broke them because you can't really fight well in the water and some of them even drowned. And then his hor then Maxentius's horse and his more advanced troops would hold the position at first, but then would later break and try to flee to the river. And Constantine would soon take seize slash enter Rome on the twenty ninth of three twelve A.D. And at this point, he was essentially the king, and he would end up emperor, and he would at la launch a a basically a purge of the images of Maxentius and would kind of replace him as achievements. And now that Constantine has really control over a lot more of... He doesn't have control over the whole empire, but he has control over Rome, he has control over Gaul, France, and England, and at this point, he'd gradually consolidate his superior over his rivals as the Tretrarchy at this point was crumbling. And at this point, he would lead, in 313, he'd meet Licinius to secure their alliance... However, this was cut pretty short as soon enough Maximinus would cross the Bosphorus and invade European territory. And Licinius would eventually defeat Maximinus and would take control of the east of the empire. And the relationships between them would eventually deteriorate and at one point Constantine would suffer an assassination attempt by a man who Licinius wanted to elevate to the rank of Caesar. And soon enough, in either 314 or 316 AD, it's not certain, the two men fought against one another at the Battle of Cybele, where Constantine won. They would clash at, again at the Battle of Mardia, where they'd make another agreement. Where they made several different, where they basically made their children Caesar. And at this point, Constantine would also rule some dioceses and, took, and continue to wage war. And in the year 320, it's alleged that Licinius had launched a oppression of Christians, but it's somewhat dubious. And at this point, they would, this essentially kind of dubious arrangement slash all of this persecution made, felt like a challenge to Constantine, and eventually there'd be a great civil war in 324. And at this point, what happened is that basically Licinius would represent really the pagan faith slash the Roman faith, where Constantine would would march under the standard of really the Barum. They'd really serve more for the 
for Jesus of Nazareth, and this would be seen as almost by both sides as a religious battle. And at this point, even though outnumbered, Constantine's army would emerge successful. And at this point, Lucinius and Martinian would would surrender and end up being... They would be freed as they surrounded only with the promise that their lives would be spared, but eventually Lucinius would be killed. And as a result of this, Constantine soon became the sole emperor of the Roman Empire, uniting the East and the West. Now that I've covered all of this rise to power and kind of him becoming that, I'm going to talk a bit about what he did as king of Constant, emperor of Rome. Talk about a bit about his legacy, but then I'll be done for the day. So first I'm going to talk about really... What his main thing was, or what he's really known for, the foundation of Constantinople. Think to that, with Licinius's defeat, it was really believed that the this rival center of this pagan and this Greek-speaking political activity in the East was gone, as opposed to this more Christian and Latin Rome. This is really like Rome and the East were kind of considered to be different, and they was proposed that in order to help integrate the East into the Roman Empire as a whole, they should make a new Eastern capital. And there were several different locations for this alternative capital. There was Serdica, which is present-day Sophia. They also considered Thessalon- Thessalonica and Sirmium. But eventually, Constantine would decide to work on the Greek city of Byzantium, which already existed at this point, but had this advantage of being built by extensively, being, which had been Greek, but had also been extensively rebuilt on by the Romans and was strategically valuable. And they would found it in 324 and would be named Constant, Constantinople, Constantinopolis or Constantine City or Constantinople in English. And he would, and at this point, they would either get rid of the old gods and they, or they would assimilate them into a framework of Christian symbolism. I'm talking a bit about Constantine's religious policy. He was the first emperor to really stop the persecution of Christians and to legalize Christianity along with all the other religions and cults. And this was partially due to the Edict of Milan, which was basically something he developed with his little peace meeting with Asinius. He would also eventually... And, this actually, and some people believe that... There's actually a debate over, was Constantine a Christian since youth, or did he adopt to it gradually over time? And he would, only, and he would actually be over 40 when he finally declared himself a Christian. And the thing turns out, he actually waited for his baptism until the deathbed, because he believe that basically it would release some of any of the sins that he committed while being the emperor and he would actually support the church financially he would build all types of buildings for them he would add some tax exemptions to clergy and give them a couple of other privileges he would return some property and he would also promote christians to high office he would also construct the church of the holy sepulcher in jerusalem and old saint peter's basilica think of that he also he may not have been the only p- person to really patronize the Christians. And he would actually end up legislating that Sunday should be a day of rest for all citizens in 321. And in 323, he would issue a decree which would ban Christians from participating in state sacrifices. Then this would also establish a precedent for the emperor to have great influence in and authority in these Christian councils, most notably in the dispute over Arianism. And there's be a lot more stuff. He would basically end up really adding more, well, adding more authority between the with the emperor over the church. He would end up organizing trials. He would end up organizing meetings. He would even be behind the Council of Nicaea. And he would also enforce a lot of different uh, laws. 
he would, and he would also make some new laws towards Jews, some of which were unfavorable, but were not as harsh as those people from people before them. And he also had some administrative reforms. Then tells that by the mid third century, the emperors began to really favor me- members or like the, the. Really, something known as the equestrian order over the senatorial order. As at this point, senators had had the monopoly on the most important offices, but soon enough they were being stripped of command, of legions, and of governorship, as people believed that they really didn't lack the military upbringing needed in this time of defense. But the emperors really still needed the talents and the help of the very rich, as they were what they really needed to maintain social order, to maintain cohesion, to add all types of influence and contacts. And in 326, Constantine would reverse it, this trend, however, and he would end up actually raising many of those new positions, or some of those old existing positions of the senatorial rank and reopening them to the oldest aristocracy, but he would also elevate their rank of existing office holders who were equestrians to senators, and he would, which would actually end up degrading the value and slash the equestrian order. And he would end up just, he would also restore the Senate. He would end up doing a lot of things that would really kind of restore it, but he would also not really give it too much power. And I'm talking a little bit about his monetary reforms. They noticed that the third century saw a lot of inflation because people were making fiat money to un- pay for or pay for things, in exp- especially public expenses. And Diocletian would end up failing to really establish trustworthy minting of silver and bullion coins. And the failure was the fact that the silver currency was really overvalued in terms of how much silver it contained. And Constantine would soon stop minting this, but the pure silver Argentius by the Diocletianic silver Argentius, but would continue with the bullion currency. I think there's that from the early 300s onwards, Constantine would really stop taking attempts at restoring the silver currency, and he'd really prefer to concentrate on the gold currency. Especially the gold solidius, which made 30, 72 of which were equivalent of a pound of gold. However, they would they would still continue to issue new and very debased silver pieces. They would also have bronze pieces, which were really not super valuable, but they but they would help assure the possibility of keeping fiduciary mounting alongside a golden standard, which was useful. However, some people believe that this would actually help. Increased the rift between classes of the rich could really benefit from the stability in the gold piece while the poor had to cope with these very poorly valued bronze pieces. Then to notice that Constantine's monetary policies would also be closely associated with his religious policies as a lot of his increased minting would be would be kind of correlated or kind of associated with the confiscation of all these pagan statues made of gold, silver, and bronze as he would melt down these statues for minting would also end up executing Crispus, who was one of his sons, by poison, and would also end up murdering Fosta, his wife. And some people, there's not really a ton of, like, belief behind why this happened, and there's a lot of, like, mixed accounts over this, partially to the fact that a lot of people ended up really wiping out, or kind of, they were kind of Purge from a lot of records and buildings and things. And even though that Constantine would end up creating his apparent heirs known as Caesars, he would actually give his creations this hereditary character, which was 
something that was not really seen in the tetrarchic system. And his Caesars were basically to be kept in the hope that they could one day become emperors. And as a result of this, there's this alternative explanation for the execution of Crispus that was Constantine really wanted to keep a firm grip on the heirs, on like who's, who's his prospective heirs. I'm talking now about his military campaigns. So Constantine would consider Constantinople to be his capital and permanent residence, and he would actually live there for a good portion of his later life. And he would actually attempt to con- retake several different promises. He'd hoped to, he tried to reconquer Dacia. And in 332, he would actually campaign with the Sarmatians against the Goths and would take out many of them. And he ended up gaining more control over the Dacian region, would actually also gain control over the Sarmatians. And then later in his life, he would actually make a campaign, plan campaigns against Persia. However, he was not, it's not really known like how successful he actually was at this and why he did, and, and why he did really attempt a campaign against this. He got sick, and the maintenance that would have actually led him to campaign was that in 336, the Persians would end up invading Mar- Armenia and installing a Persian clan as their leader, and Constantine himself would actually revolve the campaign against Persia and thought of it as a crusade. But he got sick, which led him not to not to avoid doing the campaign. I've talked a little bit about his death and sickness, so Constantine knew death would soon come at one point. Then knows that within the Church of the Holy Apostles, Constantine had actually secretly prepared a resting place for himself. But it would come sooner than expected for him. And by the feast of Easter of 337, Constantine fell seriously ill, and he would leave Constantinople for the hot baths, which were near his mother's city of Helenopolis. And there in a church, he would pray and would end up realizing that he was dying. And seeking purification, he became a catrumen, which is a specific form of a specific thing. He ended up attempting to return to Constantinople. And a catrumen is a specific Christian thing. It's kind of hard for me to explain. I'd recommend that you look it up. And he ended up making it as far as Nicomedia. And at this point, he would be he would be, or he would reach only as far as Nicomedia, and at this point he would summon the bishops and told them that he hoped to be baptized in the River Jordan, which is where Jesus and others had been baptized, or wouldn't have been baptized. And at this point, he basically promised that, like, if I get baptized, I will live a more Christian life if I survive, and he and they performed the ceremonies right away. thing to know is that that he was part of a tradition of really a one custom at the time, which you say that you postpone baptism until after infancy. Does that please mention it? One of the hypotheses for his late baptism is believed that he wanted absolvement for all as many sins as possible, and he would die soon after his baptism in a villa known as Chiron. After his death, he would be buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles. And then his body would end up surviving later on after his death, but would eventually be destroyed after the Fourth Crusade, at some point after the Fourth Crusade. I'll talk a bit about his legacy. So Constantine would gain the honor for the great from Christian historians, 
for long after he had died, but to be honest, he really could have gotten it based on his achievements alone. He was responsible for uniting the empire under one emperor and ending the Tetrarch system. He would win major victories over the Franks and the Alamanni from 306 to 308, the Franks again from 313 to 314, the Goths and the Sarmatians. And by 336, he had reoccupied most of the long-lost province of Dacia, which had been lost by Aurelian. By the time of his death, he was planning an expedition to end Persian raids on his eastern frontier. He would also be the second longest serving emperor behind Augustus if you combine his co-ruler and sole ruler years. He would also revive the clean, shaven fashion of Roman emperors. And the Holy Roman Empire would end up considering Constantine to be one of the invenerable figures of its tradition. I'm going to talk a little bit about just his quick... I'm going to do like a quick summary before I end out for today. So Constantine was born... In the Roman Empire, in the eastern part, eastern part of the Roman Empire, his father was an important man, and and at first Constantine would live under the Tetrarch system, and he would soon ascend to the rank. He would ascend to several different ranks of Caesar and Augustus, and he would hold a couple of different ranks. But he would traditionally be in the West. His main holdings at first were Gaul, Spain, and Britannia, and at first he definitely he struggled with the Tetrarch system as he was subject to the whims of the more powerful Diocletian and several other people who saw him demoted or not win promotions he thought he would, but eventually he would consolidate rule and seize the whole Roman Empire. And once emperor, he would launch several military campaigns and add new territories under the fold, expand the rights of Christians and help the Christians out, make reforms in the way currency was manufactured, and just add reforms to the civil service system. Thanks for listening, folks. This was the Random History Podcast.